Welcome back to season two of What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, the podcast for both doctors and patients with me, Liz Tucker. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Shilpa Ravella, a transplant gastroenterologist who argues that inflammation may be a factor in many of the diseases we face today, from heart disease to cancer. While our body's inflammatory response is essential in fighting off infections and viruses, in her recently published book, A Silent Fire, The Story of Inflammation, Diet and Disease, Shilpa claims many of us are suffering from hidden, low-level inflammation, which may be at the root of many illnesses. And she reveals simple lifestyle changes we can make to reverse this. And one of the many surprising facts she reveals is that most so-called anti-inflammatory painkillers, such as ibuprofen, although they may suppress inflammation initially, they actually delay the resolution of inflammation in our bodies. It turns out that one of the oldest painkillers of all, aspirin, is one of the very few painkillers which does help resolve inflammation. But before we get to Shilpa's interview, a brief request from me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find out more, you can sign up to my Substack account, which is liztucker.substack.com. Go to my podcast website at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com and follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker. And if you'd like to financially support the podcast, I'd really appreciate it. A huge amount of work goes into both the research and production of this. So even a small amount a month makes a huge difference. And you can provide support at patreon.com slash you or via my website, which as I mentioned is whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. Many thanks. Now back to the interview with Shulpa. Dr. Shulpa Ravella is a transplant gastroenterologist with a particular expertise in nutrition. And she's also an assistant professor of medicine at Columbia University Medical Center. Here's her interview. So Shilpa, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So inflammation historically, it's a useful response to protect our body from threats. But the problem is when that inflammation persists without a known trigger, and that's really when it becomes a problem. Yes, exactly. So inflammation is actually an ancestral response that evolved to protect us against things like pathogens, poisons, and traumas. But the problem with inflammation is that there is a biological price for having evolved this robust inflammatory response. And we have a sense of that biological price, for example, with autoimmune disorders. But now we are also finding that this biological price of inflammation is far more pervasive than we've ever imagined because we also know of an entity called chronic low-level inflammation. And this type of inflammation is tied to a wide variety of our modern disorders. And in fact, you're suggesting that it may be a common thread running through nearly all disease. Yes, it certainly is one common thread running through nearly all of our modern chronic disorders from heart disease and cancer to obesity, diabetes, neurodegenerative diseases, and some psychiatric disorders as well. So do you think doctors should be testing more for low-key inflammation? Well, it's a hard question. You know, we are able to pick up inflammatory markers in the blood. For example, we have something called high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. And C-reactive protein is a molecule that's made by the liver in response to areas of inflammation in the body. And, And we can test for something like this or other inflammatory markers in the blood. 
But the problem we run into is that these markers are not so specific. So if someone has an elevated CRP or C-reactive protein, it can't really tell why the person is inflamed or how long or where it's coming from. What we can do is uh, just look at proxies for inflammation in the body. So if you go to your primary care clinic, you know, your doctor might actually test you for high blood sugars. And we know that high blood sugars, having elevated blood sugars is indeed an indication that you may have silent inflammation in the body. And just having the belly fat around the abdominal area, we do know that that's a marker for the visceral fat or the fat that wraps around your inner organs. That fat is highly inflammatory. So we know that just having belly fat is also another marker for being silently inflamed. So there are some proxies that can tell us about whether someone is inflamed or not. Generally speaking, that sort of stomach fat is symptomatic of a number of metabolic syndromes. Right, exactly. The, the belly fat is especially insidious. It's different than the fat that kind of pads the thighs or the upper arms uh, because that belly fat is almost like an immune organ. You can actually think of it as an immune organ and it's a marker for the deep fat that wraps around all of the abdominal organs. And that fat is highly, highly inflammatory and it churns out inflammatory molecules at all hours of the day. Inflammation in obesity may be one mechanistic link between obesity association with a variety of chronic disorders that we're seeing today. So you make the point that the inflammatory markers are non-specific, but still, should doctors be just testing for that anyway? Because if it's such a common thread for so many diseases, it's at least presumably useful to assess whether it's a factor in a patient's disease. Right. So in certain conditions, for example, in heart disease, testing for something called high sensitivity CRP, which picks up minute elevations in CRP, that's something that cardiologists are now starting to do. So that is certainly something when uh, patients walk into their generalist's office, they may not get a test for inflammation, but cardiology clinic, for example, they may be tested for something like high sensitivity C-reactive protein. And as the science progresses in this area, as we think about different ways to capture the silent hidden inflammation. There isn't one type of silent inflammation, but many different types. And that's part of the challenge too. So what exactly happens to our bodies when we suffer an inflammatory response? Well, when you think of maybe when you stub your toe, and it's, it's, a, it's a very painful experience for most people. And sure is. what happens is that you see redness, heat, swelling, lots of pain. And this is a manifestation of things happening on a cellular level in the body. So you see the redness and heat from the blood flow increasing and the blood vessels dilating. You have uh, fluid and proteins that leak out of the blood vessels, putting painful pressure on nerve endings, causing swelling and pain. And, and this is what you tend to see in acute inflammation. These are the cardinal signs of inflammation. These were first described by the ancients, uh, the things that we can all see with the naked eye. And of course, you can get loss of function as well in inflammation. That's a fifth cardinal sign that was later added but you may have silent inflammation in the body at all hours of the day, and, and you may not even know it. You may be feeling great. It's not something that's as obvious as a stubbed toe or as an autoimmune disease where you have an overt signs or symptoms of inflammation. And it turns out that white blood cells called microphages are particularly important. Can you explain what they are and why they matter? Sure. Macrophages are one type of immune cells in our bodies, and they do a variety of things in our bodies. They fight germs, they maintain bodily tissues, and you can see macrophages in acute inflammation. I chose to focus on macrophages almost as I would character in, in a story, uh, because macrophages are particularly central to the type of hidden 
low-level inflammation triggered by dietary and lifestyle factors. And uh, macrophages in general are very important for that, that type of inflammation. So getting an inkling now of the importance of microphages, how might that change how we treat inflammation in the future? This idea that this low-level inflammation could be an actual risk factor in and of itself for a disease like heart disease really tells us that we need to prevent or treat this type of inflammation. And that's one of the most important things about this whole concept is that we have triggers, we have dietary and lifestyle triggers that can cause our bodies to become inflamed. And these dietary and lifestyle factors are in large part a cause of many of our modern chronic disorders. We've talked a little bit about the microphages, but can you also explain the role of T and B cells? Sure. When our bodies first encounter germs, they first encounter the innate immune response. And that includes the barriers of our bodies, like our skin, the mucus barriers in our intestines, our lungs, our mouth, even the hair in our nostrils and the lashes on our eyes. All of these things are part of the innate immune system. And you have cells like macrophages and neutrophils, but also other cells coming in to aggressively try to combat the germ. And we have another arm of the immune system called the adaptive immune system. And the adaptive immune system responds a bit more slowly. It's called upon by the innate immune system. And this includes lymphocytes like T cells and B cells. B cells, uh, certain types of B cells produce antibodies to target pathogens. So when you think of these two arms of the immune system, it's more on a spectrum really, but we think of the innate immune system as the first responder, the aggressive just uh, first responder against all of these poisons and pathogens and the adaptive immune system as kind of a slower, more sophisticated response. And there seem to be two things which are clearly important in driving inflammation. You touched on it just a moment ago, what we eat, but also our gut biome. Exactly. There are so many different lifestyle factors that can affect hidden inflammation. One of the most important things is what we eat. What we eat also affects the microbes in our gut. We have trillions of microbes in our gut from bacteria and viruses to fungi. And this is the gut microbiome. The gut microbiome has, has played a very, very important role in uh, metabolism and in immunology. We know, for example, that when you look at germ-free mice who are grown up in sterile bubbles, they develop very maladjusted immune systems uh, that are very hyperactive and prone to over-responding. They're unable to defend themselves against germs. So the gut microbiome is incredibly important. How we feed the microbes in our gut is also very, very important. So what does an anti-inflammatory diet look like? One of the most important things for an anti-inflammatory diet is to take in as much fiber as you can. And this is fiber from whole foods. Whole plant foods is where fiber is found. And one of the interesting things is that the majority of us today have a fiber deficiency yet fiber is our most anti-inflammatory nutrient. A variety of foods have different types of fibers. You can get insoluble fiber or soluble fiber. The soluble fiber, which you find in things like bananas and oatmeal and beans, that's the type of fiber that's actually the most important for the microbes in our gut because the microbes in our gut will metabolize this type of fiber. It's actually food for them the type of fiber they prefer the most, and they will make wonderful, beneficial anti-inflammatory compounds like short-chain fatty acids. And short-chain fatty acids, for example, can calm inflammation in the gut, but also throughout the body. They can actually affect inflammation all around the body. And the thought is that this would encourage an anti-inflammatory gut biome. 
Exactly, exactly. One of the most important ways in which we create an anti-inflammatory gut microbiome is not just the quantity of fiber, but also the diversity. So we want to be eating not just the iceberg lettuce and bananas, but also all of these different vegetables and fruits and whole grains and legumes, uh, because the diversity of your diet actually is very, very important. Even when you don't change the quantity of the fiber that you have in your diet, but you simply change the diversity, studies have shown that that in and of itself can help to decrease inflammation in the body. So when you go to the grocery store, you really want to be shopping on the periphery and kind of avoid the central aisles where you see all that packaged food, but really go towards the periphery and get just a wide array of fruits and vegetables. So don't buy things with lots of ingredients, buy the actual single food, whether that's steak apple, pear, rice. Yeah. One of the things that we've seen in the past few decades is a rise of processed foods. And I think these are some of the most insidious foods that we consume because these foods are really whole food derivatives. They tend to have additives and lots of excess sugar, lots of excess salt, all of which can be inflammatory. And we're finding, you know, for example, with some of these additives, including artificial sweeteners or things like emulsifiers that they can really affect the gut microbiome. So they can they can help to create a more inflammatory gut microbiome. So they have effects that are far ranging in the body. So processed foods, uh, especially modern processed foods are, are definitely the types of foods you want to avoid. I think for people, there's a lot of confusion about food because I think there's certain things that we can all agree are a bad thing to eat, the ultra processed food. But for example, Talking to low-carb doctor, Dr. Georgia Ede, recently, she's a psychiatrist. She strongly believes that grains are inflammatory. So strong recommendation not to eat grains and legumes. Whereas both you and she would say ultra-processed foods, bad, green leaf vegetables, good. So it's quite a complicated picture, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely can be. And I think across the board, you know, folks can agree that we want to avoid processed foods and we want lots and lots of plant foods on the plate. When it comes to an anti-inflammatory diet, I think there's been a lot of confusion on that front too, because the word inflammation has been around for a long time. But we are just now in the past couple of decades able to declare that, you know, hidden inflammation, for example, can be an actual cause of disease and that it is tied to so many disorders. So when we are talking about chronic inflammatory disorders, we're not talking just about a few autoimmune disorders. We're talking about the major killers that we face today in society. And we're talking about most of our chronic disorders, heart disease, cancer, obesity, diabetes, neurodegenerative diseases, uh, some psychiatric disorders. And all of these are, at least in part, chronic inflammatory disorders. So when we talk about the anti-inflammatory diet in this context, it really is a population-wide diet. It's not meant for a few folks, uh, subsets of uh, folks who have uh, gut inflammation or autoimmune disorders. It's meant you know, for anyone with uh, belly fat, for example, which is the majority of us. It's based on all of the nutrition science we have to date, including the emerging science on how food affects our gut germs. It's a really important part of the picture that's been missing for quite some time. So when we're talking about the anti-inflammatory diet in that context, we know that foods like whole grains and legumes and even nightshade vegetables that are often um, maligned in anti-inflammatory diets like eggplants or tomatoes and peppers and potatoes, all of these foods have been replete in traditional diets for a very long time. And the evidence to date shows us that they are anti-inflammatory. We have dozens of randomized clinical trials showing that whole grains and legumes calm inflammation. Of course, exclusion diets are appropriate in certain conditions, you know, certain autoimmune disorders like celiac disease, 
folks will want to avoid gluten-containing grains and even in non-celiac wheat sensitivity, for example. But at large, these foods are great for the population. And I think another part of the picture is how we are preparing these grains. A processed bagel is very different from a sourdough bread baked in the ancient traditions. There's also another difference is you can get the German breads where the grains are actually whole. Right. As opposed to when you have milled flour. Exactly. And there are different health benefits between those two. The intact grains are much better for the microbes in the gut as well. They have higher quantities of fiber. There's a very different effect on blood sugar as well. And Shilpa, you argue that fermented foods have a major impact too. Fermentation intrinsically changes the architecture of a food. So when you ferment a food, a lot of these sort of problem nutrients or anti-nutrients in grains, gluten or the lectins or the amylase trypsin inhibitors and FODMAPs, which are certain types of carbohydrates in grains that give them problems. So all of these things are actually decreased and the sugars are decreased as well. So after you ferment a food and you're eating a fermented bread, it's, it's quite a different type of food for, for your body. So, so all grains are, are certainly not the same and preparation is a very large component of this. So what's happening to the nutritional benefit of food when we ferment it? Well, I think anytime you, you are fermenting a food, even if you are cooking it, you are actually doing beneficial things to that food. So for example, you, you may not have viable bacteria in that sourdough bread, but you may have bacterial metabolites and dead bacteria. You know, again, you've changed the architecture of the food. You've improved the vitamin and the mineral content, the polyphenol content, and you've done all of these wonderful things to that food. So anytime you are fermenting a certain food, you're actually introducing also probiotics into the body. And probiotics are beneficial bacteria that you introduce into your gut. And even if those beneficial bacteria don't colonize the gut, even if they're not sticking around, because that's something that folks bring up, how do you know if you're ingesting a fermented food that those bacteria that you ingest will actually stay there in your gut? The answer is even if they're not there to stick around, they are actually having conversations with your immune cells. They are having conversations with the microbes in your gut. They are, they are making metabolites. So on their way through your body, they are doing lots of wonderful things from an anti-inflammatory standpoint. And another key part of controlling the inflammatory process can be exercise. Now, generally, that is anti-inflammatory. But if we go over the top, it can actually have the reverse effect. Correct. Exercise is wonderful. Routine exercise is, is a very good thing to do for the body. We have controlled trials across age groups showing that exercise can actually calm chronic inflammation inside of the body. But I do think it is important to exercise in the right way as well. Too much exercise, and particularly you can sometimes see this with endurance running and things like that. If you exercise too much or in the wrong way, that can paradoxically become inflammatory. This can just be because the body doesn't have enough time to recuperate and to rest and to get back to sort of a baseline before getting a new surges of exercise again. And I think that balance is very important when one is starting on an exercise regime. And also folks who are going from zero exercise to 100% overnight, it's important to ramp up slowly because we do need some inflammation in exercise. And in fact, it's, it's how we build muscle when you're doing strength training. You have these micro tears in your muscle and you have the inflammatory response. And then you have a resolution of that inflammation and repair. That's how you build muscle. But if you go from zero to 100 in a day or overnight, then it is, it is a lot of stress on your body and it can paradoxically become inflammatory instead. Now, at the extreme end of inflammatory disease, you've got the patients with an autoimmune disease where their immune system is actually attacking their own body. And then the other end of that, you've got immune deficiency 
where the patient's immune system doesn't seem to be responding effectively at all. So in those two extremes, what's happened to their anti-inflammatory response to make it go so out of kilter? That's a great question. I think this goes back again to the whole idea of having a balanced inflammatory response, because when we speak of hidden inflammation, this really is a relative definition because our bodies are inflamed all the time on some level, a physiologic type of inflammation. Just simply having the massive germs in our gut that we do means that we are going to have some level of inflammation going on. And we do need inflammation. We need our immune systems to be responsive, to be able to fight germs. We need some level of inflammation. So the goal isn't to bring it to zero because on the other end of the spectrum also is that we have autoimmunity and we have this robust overimmune response, whether it's towards our own bodily tissues or even against a germ. If you have an overly uh, robust inflammatory response against a germ, then you may harm more of your own tissues that you intended to. So the idea really is to, is to have a balanced sort of an immune response. And a big part of all of this also is the gut microbes, our microbiome trains our immune system. So again, going back to those germ-free mice who grow up in sterile bubbles, they, they have very maladjusted immune systems. They have excessive immune responses to harmless things like pollen and dander, and they are not able to mount immune responses towards germs, for example. And you touched on in heart disease, we may overlook the importance of inflammation. And I was really interested to read in your book that a drug that has been used for arthritis in what was known as the Canto trial, also seemed to work in people with heart disease. Right. So this was conducted in 2017, and this was done by Peter Libby and Paul Ridker, two cardiologists at Harvard. And they looked at thousands of folks uh, who had silent inflammation, and they defined silent inflammation by an elevation of high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. And they'd also had prior heart attacks as well. They controlled for other risk factors for heart disease, like high blood cholesterol levels, diabetes, high blood pressure, and things like that. And they addressed only inflammation. This was a randomized controlled clinical trial. And the intervention arm, they gave patients an anti-inflammatory drug that's usually used in rheumatoid arthritis called canakinumab, which targets a very specific cytokine. They found that when low-level inflammation is addressed, there's actually a decrease in the risk of future heart attacks, strokes, and even cardiovascular death for these patients. Now, you mentioned earlier that obesity may be linked to inflammation. Can you explain how that process might work? What we do know is that obesity and inflammation are, are certainly tied. When you look at fat tissue, fat tissue functions like an immune organ. You have the belly fat especially, and also the visceral fat. The belly fat is a marker, the visceral fat, and the visceral fat around the abdominal organs and also around the blood vessels and such can churn out inflammatory markers pretty much at all hours of the day. And obesity is linked to a variety of chronic inflammatory disorders like heart disease and other conditions uh, like cancer. We, we know that inflammation could potentially be one mechanistic link between obesity and some of the complications that, that we are seeing in obesity. But all of these metabolic syndromes tend to show people with an increase in insulin as well. How much are raised insulin levels and inflammation linked together? Well, we do know that the immune system and metabolism are intricately interwoven. They both co-evolved. Fat cells and immune cells share many similar functions, for example. And this goes back across all organisms, across the phylogenetic ladder. 
So we do know that there are these very, very intricate links and insulin, high blood sugars, for example, can be a cause of inflammation, but potentially also a consequence. When you look at preclinical studies, controlling inflammation in animal models has been shown to decrease insulin resistance. And human observational studies have also shown that folks with diabetes, there is an association with inflammatory markers in the blood. And people have referred to this field as immunometabolism. Immunometabolism, exactly. This is a relatively newer field. We thought that these were two very distinct fields previously, but this is a field that is that is emerging and looking forward to seeing much more research in this area as well. And as we get older, inflammation may also play a part in that aging process. Yes, absolutely. So to be aging is inflammatory on some level. It's depressing. It is and it isn't. <laughs> it's the natural state of things in some ways, because beyond all of the triggers that inflame the young, you know, all of the dietary and lifestyle factors that, that trigger inflammation in the young, we, we know that uh, the elderly have other things going on in their bodies. For example, body fat tends to move from the periphery to the midsection, so creating more of that inflammatory abdominal fat. We know that there are hormonal changes in the elderly, the decrease in estrogen and the decrease in testosterone. We know that these hormones can definitely manage inflammation. So, so lacking some of those hormones can also become a problem. And we know that inflammation is actually a hallmark of aging. It's one of several essential biological processes that drive aging in humans. We know that the aging body tends to build up uh, molecular debris. It becomes more stressed, yet uh, less adept at handling that stress, and that becomes inflammatory as well. So there, a certain amount of inflammation goes hand in hand with aging, certainly. But inflammation and inflammaging or the inflammation of aging, excessive inflammation and aging is also tied to the comorbidities that you see in aging. So again, all of these comorbidities show up, heart disease and cancer and neurodegenerative disorders. So all of these tend to be associated with not only inflammation, but inflammaging and aging. And one of the neurodegenerative disorders you've mentioned in the book is Alzheimer's and the role that inflammation may play there. Can you explain a little bit about that? Sure. So Alzheimer's disease, we know that about a third of, of cases are actually due to environmental factors. These are things like obesity and diabetes and smoking. The genes are involved certainly in many, many cases. We do know that a lot of the genes we are seeing that are involved in Alzheimer's disease also relate to the immune system. And there have been interesting autopsy studies that have been done that have showed that the folks that actually develop clinical disease of Alzheimer's, because there are some folks who, who build up these uh, misfolded proteins called amyloid and tau, which are the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease, and they never get the actual clinical disease, cognitive issues and, and such things. And autopsy studies have shown that the folks who actually develop the clinical disease tend to have inflammation in the brain along with those plaques and tangles. So perhaps they might need that inflammation in order to develop clinical disease. So the historical idea of plaques in the brain that Alzheimer's patients have may not, you're suggesting, be enough on its own. But when those plaques come together with inflammation, that's when the disease develops. That is what some scientists hypothesizing. We don't know that for sure, but that's the theory. Exactly. Exactly. And it's not just physical disease that you're talking about. It's also potentially mental illnesses, too, that inflammatory cytokines could contribute to depression. Right. When you think of depression, a, a good il illustration is just to think of someone who is sick and ex exhibits illness behaviors. So if you have the flu or a cold, you just 
want to be by yourself. You lose excitement from the pleasures in life. You don't want to eat much. And your body is inflamed, of course, from this flu. But we know that inflammation that happens in the body can also affect the mind and the mood because all of the inflammation in the body, like the immune cells and the cytokines, they can actually cross the blood-brain barrier. They can actually give signals to the endothelial cells. We know that inflammation can cross over and cause cognitive issues, can cause mood issues. A lot of these sickness behaviors that that we're seeing are very similar to the symptoms of depression. A depressed person as well, the pleasures of life fail to excite, for example. So might that suggest, from your perspective, that an anti-inflammatory diet might also be helpful for people with depression? I think certainly in certain cases of depression, it could certainly be helpful. We, we do see associations between depression and elevated inflammatory markers in the blood. We see that folks who are depressed tend to develop chronic inflammatory disorders more often than their counterparts. And folks diagnosed with chronic inflammatory disorders tend to develop depression more often than their counterparts. And the effect can't wholly be attributed to lifestyle changes or quality of life changes from having a chronic inflammatory disorder. So we certainly know that having a healthy diet, having a healthy lifestyle can be an important arm in, in hopefully helping to combat some of the symptoms of depression. And this isn't to say that every single case of depression is tied to inflammation, but if we're able to identify those folks in whom inflammation does play a part, then perhaps we might be able to have more targeted treatments for them. So it might be an additional factor in some cases. Exactly. A recent study suggested that loneliness from serial breakups is linked to inflammation in men. What evidence is there for that? That seems an extraordinary claim. Overall, when you look at the evidence behind stress and chronic inflammatory disorders, we know that stress is, is pretty toxic for our bodies. And this includes stresses of all kinds. This can be stress from a breakup causing unwanted loneliness, unwanted solitude. Uh, this can be stress from a bad boss or bullying on the job, stress from a divorce, childhood stressors even, like abuse in childhood. And we know that chronic stress, not the acute stresses, but chronic ongoing stress is tied to a higher risk of chronic inflammatory disorders. And chronic stress is also tied to elevated blood markers of inflammation. What studies do we have, Shilpa, to show that? Well, we have a study, for example, showing that even a simple stress like public speaking, just being up on a stage, talking in front of people for a certain amount of time is tied to a rise, an actual rise in inflammatory markers in the blood. Public speaking is one of people's worst fears. If you look at a list, number one is fear of death. And then sort of number two is public speaking. And you th yes. think, well, Public speaking may be scary, but surely there are worse things. Yes. And I, th I think it is a bigger fear than most people think about. We do have this study on inflammation, but also when we look at public speaking and what happens physiologically in the body, a lot of folks also complain about gastrointestinal issues. Their stomach, they have stomach pains and they start getting diarrhea before public speaking. And, and this, of course, goes back to all of these interesting connections between the brain and the gut. One of the things I was really interested was the anti-inflammatory drugs that, although they lower the level of inflammation, in some ways they actually delay the problem being resolved. And actually, as a result, a lower level inflammation may linger in the body for longer. Yes, we know that the resolution of inflammation, this process of all of these inflammatory cells kind of switching gears, all of these cytokines dying down. That's a very active process because macrophages, for example, one of the immune cells actually uh, secrete 
other mediators, other types of mediators that can help to calm inflammation down. So this whole process of resolution is a very active one in the body. Some of the drugs that we have today that suppress inflammation, the anti-inflammatory drugs like NSAIDs, for example, ibuprofen, these types of drugs may suppress inflammation, may make you feel better, but they also delay the process of resolution of inflammation. So that low-level inflammation may linger in your body for a longer time. And this is not to say that we should never take NSAIDs. You know, I think they should be used with caution and in good judgment. It does feel completely counterintuitive. You think the drugs are called anti-inflammatory, so you imagine, therefore, that's what they do. But it turns out the oldest anti-inflammatory drug of the lot, aspirin, actually is one of the few drugs that actually does help resolve inflammation. Right, exactly. Aspirin is one of the very few drugs that we have today widely on the market that can actually help to resolve inflammation. One of the most interesting things that I tell all of my patients is when you're eating enough fiber from a whole foods plant-based diet, you actually have low-level salicylic acid coursing through your blood. So it's the equivalent of taking a baby aspirin. You have those resolution properties without kind of any of the dangers because aspirin as well as other NSAIDs can cause those gastrointestinal ulcers. It is extraordinary though. It does feel like more and more things are found out about aspirin all the time. For some cancers, it's recommended you should take it to stop or reduce the risk of metastatic disease, which again, presumably is linked with inflammation. Right. You know, it's it's deployed in primary and secondary prevention for very specific diseases and and it has been a very useful drug. So it seems really the challenge for modern medicine is to find out more about this hidden inflammation and where it's coming from and recognize its pivotal role in so many diseases. Absolutely. And I think that would be a shift from viewing diseases in the context of disparate specialties. We should address these diseases in part, but we should also address them in concert. We should be treating the body and the mind in concert because we know that you know, this one root cause or association, hidden inflammation or inflammation as a whole, is, is a very important risk factor. And we have the tools today to help to address this through making dietary and lifestyle changes. You know, we may not be there yet with deploying anti-inflammatory drugs for all of these versions of hidden inflammation, because we know that anti-inflammatory drugs, when you look at the immune suppressing drugs, for example, uh, beyond NSAIDs and beyond aspirin even, there are risks to taking those drugs. These can be risks like a higher risk of infection or some cancers. So I think we will see exciting exciting research in the drug development arena for, for some of these disorders. But I think in the meantime, it is really important to optimize diet and lifestyle. Is it a problem that as medicine's got more and more specialised, you've got the different consultants each in their silos. And what you really need to do is not just bring mind and body together, but bring all these disciplines together. Because if lifestyle and diet are so important, they're affecting all these facets of our health. And so therefore, seeing a heart specialist, seeing an endocrinologist entirely separate may not be so useful. Yes. Medical knowledge has exploded. So there are subspecialists and super, super subspecialists. And it, it actually kind of makes us more siloed as well in our own specific specialties. We do need to be also looking at the bigger picture. And we really do need to be putting a lot of emphasis and a lot of effort into preventative medicine and then also into lifestyle medicine. I think lifestyle medicine is a big, big part of the whole picture. And, and this means that you are given this prescription, dietary or lifestyle prescription for all of these comorbidities that are affecting you. 
we are giving you this prescription to prevent not only heart disease, but also cancer down the line or diabetes or obesity or neurodegenerative disease in old age. And we know that these disorders are part of our biological history. If we live long enough, you know, we, we may develop cancer. If we live long enough, we may develop some of these disorders. And so we want to live not only long, but also well. We want to be able to prevent these disorders. And one of the best tools that we have now is lifestyle. And that's starting at any age, starting from birth. But even if you start when you are, when you are older, there have been studies have shown that it's not too late. You know, you can actually start in your uh, middle age or even, even when you're elderly and still see benefits. So over the next 10 or 20 years, how would you like to see modern medicine addressing this whole issue of inflammation and how that should impact on patient treatment? I think one of the cornerstones, again, is to view the patient systemically as a whole and also receive the specialist care they need and address much of this through prevention, first and foremost, through lifestyle before some of these problems develop. That's, that's sort of the easiest thing that we can do initially is to sort of prevent these things from happening in the first place. And so I would love to see more emphasis on preventative medicine, and I would love to see more emphasis on really bringing some of these, some of these things into the clinics. And it, it's, it's tough because it's not as easy as prescribing a pill to actually prescribe a diet means that there is a portion of culinary medicine involved. And we need to teach patients the skills to actually prepare some of these minimally processed whole foods at home. So I think implementing all of those things will be key. And, and really also understanding that this type of a diet isn't about a label. It's, it's not about a vegan diet versus a paleo diet versus a low carb or a high carb. It's really one major pattern, lots and lots of fiber from whole plant foods and food preparation, thinking about the gut germs. Is it also though about teaching doctors? Because for very good reasons, historically, medical school has really been about surgery, pharmaceuticals. There's still not a huge amount of time either in basic medical training or indeed in continuing education afterwards spent on nutrition and diet. Right. That's an important part of it as well, is incentivizing physicians and hospitals to actually implement these practices and to incorporate this into medical school as well. I think it's gotten much better now than since when I was in medical school. There are so many more programs now for culinary medicine, and, and there is more now than there was even a couple of decades ago. But I still think there is a long way to go because the majority of uh, folks in Western nations consume very, very minimal quantities of fiber, very minimal. And the majority of these folks have one or more chronic inflammatory disorders. But the positive thing about this is, in a sense, it puts our health in our hands because it's not just relying on taking a drug. Actually, this is something we can all do. We can all learn to eat a more anti-inflammatory diet. We can all take more exercise. Exactly. It, it puts our health into our own hands in part. And it also tells us we actually can be very inclusive with this diet. We, we don't have to exclude all of these different foods that we've been taught to exclude in an anti-inflammatory diet. It doesn't have to be so restrictive. It can be actually pleasurable as well. And we also want to embrace the preventative side, but also the therapeutic one. With modern medical advances, we are going to see so much in the future. I mean, we are able to do multiple organ transplants. We are seeing so many advances in cancer treatments like immunotherapies. All of us may, may have some sort of a prosthetic organ in the future. Who knows? And we know that the way we eat and live can affect how we are able to embrace these modern advances as well. And so this isn't just about the preventative side, but also the therapeutic side from an anti-inflammatory standpoint. 
Fascinating. Well, Shilpa, thank you so much indeed for talking to the podcast today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. I think your questions were great, actually. So I was really grateful for that. Shilpa, thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of the podcast. Many thanks for listening. And a reminder, you can follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker and sign up to the podcast mailing list at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. Many thanks for listening. Bye for now.